Hello, I'm Tim Dunn, transport historian and enthusiast, and in this series I'll be exploring our attachment to the sea through the stories of some of our best-loved ships, and how they've managed to survive in Britain today. I'm here in Gillingham, on the quayside, standing beside one of Britain's most famous small ships, the paddle steamer Medway Queen. Now, I can't wait to get on board. But before I do that, I want to get a feel for what it was actually like to be back in the heyday of pleasure steamers on a ship like the Medway Queen. Well, who better to answer that question than Dr Catherine Ferry, an expert on British seaside culture. Catherine, take us back to that time. In the UK, holidays tended to mean only one thing, and that was a trip to the seaside. Crowds flocked to the coast by train from the big industrial cities. A trip on a pleasure steamer was part of that. It was a grand day out, something to anticipate, look forward to. Ships like Medway Queen with their paddle wheels churning up the water, that wonderful broad white wake spreading behind. You know, they were a much-loved part of the holiday-making experience. And Britain's Victorian piers were integral to the pleasure steamer business. South End Pier is an obvious example. It's over a mile long and it's got a railway along its length built specially <laughs> to deliver passengers to and from the boats. It was one of the Medway Queen's key destinations. In 1938, there was a real boost to numbers of holidaymakers being able to get to the seaside because we had the Holidays with Pay Act. That meant that finally all working people had the right to paid holidays and it gave 11 million more people access to that seaside break. So this poster from 1947 advertises the first season after the war and it gives us a bit of a flavour. Ah oh yes, look, it promotes one of her regular trips from Southend Pier to Chatham onto Strood. Departing daily, 11.20. What's that? Two hours ashore you get with that one. All for five shillings and sixpence. That's less than, what, 30p? And they've even promised here, look, excellent luncheons and teas on board. I mean, Catherine, now that sounds perfect. Lovely. <laughs> but how adventurous were the operators when it came to trips and destinations? It was really a competitive marketplace, lots of operators, and the companies didn't restrict themselves just to trips around our shores. Here's another poster from 1962 oh, from nice. an associated company, and it's advertising summer day trips across the channel from Southend and Margate. Oh. Look at the trip here, it's described as a 140-mile French coast cruise. <laughs> That word cruise is really important because that has the air of glamour yeah, about it, doesn't yeah. it? And look at the, the colours on this poster, vivid blue skies, bright sunlight, and you've got this ship that looks almost like an ocean liner, <laughs> sort of cutting through this flotilla of yachts. It's the continental dream, isn't it, appearing on the poster? It is, and trips like this departed from various ports. Some included a few hours ashore at either Calais or Boulogne, and for a couple of years in the mid-50s, you didn't even need a passport. You just supplied the purser with a couple of photos, and he'd issue you with a simple identity card. Good Lord. I mean, it sounds absolutely wonderful, that idea of taking coffee on the continent and you come home and you tell your friends. People didn't travel abroad then, so it was the ultimate grand day out. 
Of course, back then, another part of the attraction must have been the more relaxed licensing laws. Unlike on land, of course, where strict rules meant that pubs back then were shut in the afternoon and on board the bars were open all day. In fact, you can get a sense of the atmosphere in this wonderful first-hand account from 14-year-old galley boy Ernie Crittenden, taken from the official history of the ship. We picked up a large number of trippers from South End, mainly Londoners, and were making for Herm Bay when we grounded on a sandbank at low tide. I watched from the paddle box rail the effort to get the Queen free, and remember vividly the sand being churned up by the paddle blades. In the end, we had to wait for the tide to lift us off. The incident was mentioned in the News of the World, which stated that hardly any of the passengers on board was aware of the grounding. I can believe this, as a good old knees-up was going on above, and had been since we cast off from South End. Well, that sounds loads of fun, so why did it all stop? Well, it's all about the increase in choice. Throughout the 50s and 60s, the seaside began to lose its allure because there was more competition from rising car ownership. You know, people could now afford to get a caravan, they went camping. All of these things offered more independence. Traditional seaside resorts really struggled to compete from that time onwards, and so too did the steamers. Catherine, thank you so much for setting out the wider context. Now it's time to find out a bit more about the ship itself. Looking at her here on the quayside, she's looking very smart indeed, with her elegant funnel and hull freshly painted in red, black and white, with a rather smart gold highlight. She was built in 1924 in Troon in Ayrshire for the new Medway Steam Packet Company and could carry about 900 passengers. Sitting here peacefully at her moorings, you wouldn't really think that she's had quite a battle for survival. I'm meeting Pam Bathurst, one of the trustees of the Medway Queen Preservation Society and a long-term supporter of the project to save this ship. So who better to be my guide? So Pam, I have to say this ship looks absolutely fantastic, but it hasn't always been in this state, has it? That's right, Tim. She was in a very sorry state when I first got involved. Oh. She'd been taken out of service in 1963, and after various failed attempts to preserve her, she was sold for scrap to a Belgian shipbreaker. That could have been the end of her, but luckily a last-minute alternative offer emerged. An Isle of Wight entrepreneur wanted her for a newly developed marina at Cowes. She became a floating attraction, bar by day, restaurant and club by night. The club closed in the mid-70s, and she was quietly abandoned to her fate, eventually becoming semi-submerged in the river. So Pam, is that when you got involved? Well, not quite. Ah. In 1984, a group of local businessmen managed to bring her back on a pontoon here to the Medway. What, a pontoon back here? Yes, to the outside wall of Chatham Dockyard. But that effort collapsed for lack of funds, and the ship ended up abandoned and semi-submerged. Well, how, how did things change? Well, things finally turned around when a local school teacher, Marshall Vine, set about forming a preservation society. As the sun sets upon the river Medway, and another day is drawing to an end, I thought I heard the beating of the paddles, and I saw a steamboat coming round the bend. Her decks were full of happy, smiling faces And a band played as she headed up the stream 
A sight beyond compare that helped me spellbound there as I watched the passing of the Midway Queen. How does Sighty actually get her refloated? Well, they finally got her refloated in 1987 by patching up holes in the hull with concrete and, <laughs> and other and our own unorthodox methods. Um, and they eventually won a heritage lottery grant and also some European development funding. OK, OK. That allowed us to rebuild the hull and we even had enough money to equip our workshops and employ apprentices. It's really impressive what you've achieved here. But I know from my own involvement with heritage projects, with a major rebuild like this, it always raises up big questions, like some things like, is she really the original ship? Well, I can say this. You ask any naval man, and he will tell you that the heart of the ship is the engine. The engines that are on that ship were built in 1924. They are the original engines that took the ship to Dunkirk. The key issue, I guess, here is, does the spirit still remain? The spirit certainly does remain. I agree, Pam. It's the same with our prize steam locomotives. In fact, in almost all cases, a significant proportion of the original parts get replaced many times over, but they always still retain their original spirit. Well, we're now in the heart of the ship, the engine room. I love the fact that these engines and paddle steamers were open to the public, because a visit here was always part of the trip. Pam, are there any plans to bring these engines back to life? Well, we don't have a boiler now. As you can see, there's a large empty compartment <laughs> yeah. where it should be. We're looking at options, but our clear aim for the future is to get her back to steam. This must be the galley, I guess, then, Pam, because it's, it's absolutely tiny, though. I mean, it's, what, <laughs> six foot wide? Yes, and the chef had to cook on a coal-fired range, so it must have been very hot in here. And, of course, at Dunkirk, they were cooking stew for a thousand men each trip over to France. Of course, this, this is Dunkirk evacuations. Yes. Yes, if you'd like to come with me, I'll show you the battle honours that this ship was given at Dunkirk. I'd love to. We're now in the aft passenger lounge beside a simple brass sign with the words Dunkirk in 1940. Well, we're so proud of that connection. It marks the fact that the Medway Queen was one of the many small ships that famously took part in the evacuation of British soldiers from the beaches of Dunkirk in 1940. Right. But actually, her involvement in the war started much earlier, on the 1st of September 1939. That's three days before the formal declaration of war. She was one of several ships that helped evacuate children from East London and the Medway towns. Altogether, some 17,000 children were evacuated to the coastal towns of East Anglia. Then on the 9th of September, she was requisitioned by the Admiralty as a minesweeper. In fact, it was the same for most paddle steamers right across the country. She required significant modification. For instance, the whole rear passenger saloon was cut away to provide an open deck space big enough to stow all the equipment. Well, as we know, an army of 400,000 found itself forced back to the Belgian coast, cut off with no obvious way out. So what part did the Medway Queen actually play in that? She was HMS Medway Queen by this time, and she sailed for Dunkirk along with other paddle steamers, including HMS Gracie Fields and HMS Brighton Bell. And over the next few days, the ship made no less than seven trips. She was one of the last ships to leave Dunkirk, by which time she'd survived multiple air attacks, shot down enemy aircraft, and rescued some 7,000 men. Well, we've got a reading from Lieutenant John Graves' eyewitness account. He was the ship's first officer at the time. 
It's taken from Richard Holton's book, HMS Medway Queen, and it helps convey what it was like during those fraught final days. By Monday, June the 3rd, the Germans were finally closing in on Dunkirk. At midday, Vice Admiral Ramsey issued orders that all ships were to leave Dunkirk by 2.30 the following morning. Medway Queen set out on her seventh trip, thereby establishing a record for all ships below the size of a destroyer. We berthed for the last time at midnight, and machine gun fire could be clearly heard. The sands were running out very fast. We took on board about 400 French troops. All the British Expeditionary Force had by this time left. Shelling in the harbour was very heavy. A destroyer astern of Medway Queen was hit and flung forward against our starboard paddle box, extensively damaging the paddle wheel. About 1am, our captain, Lieutenant Cook, nursed us clear of the berth with difficulty, and Medway Queen made off very slowly down the harbour, under the shore hands of Lieutenant Jolly, with the breakwater still lit by blazing oil tanks falling astern, and Lieutenant Keeley strumming a mandolin on the aft-deck to cheer up the tired Frenchman. Among the first to arrive off the beaches, Medway Queen was one of the last to leave Dunkirk on the morning of Tuesday the 4th of June 1940. And damaged, worn out and very weary, we limped into Dover. The evacuation had ended. Vice Admiral Ramsey signalled, Well done, Medway Queen, and the ships in harbour sounded their sirens. This was a very proud moment. God, quite a story, that one. And no wonder she earned the title of Heroine of Dunkirk. She was finally given back to her owners in 1946 and refitted to be ready for the summer season on the Medway in 1947. Like it never happened. <laughs> um, I've really enjoyed being shown around this place and it is, it's, it's wonderful to be seeing how much has been achieved by you and your really, frankly, small team. But the dedication you've got is just remarkable. It's really awe-inspiring. The Medway Queen is a real survivor. Her days as a minesweeper, narrowly avoiding the breakers, and not once, but twice, rising from the mud. The Dunkirk Link has proven to be one of the keys to her survival, not only in attracting visitors, but also inspiring people to rally to her cause at moments of peril. Now, no doubt her centenary in 2024 will be a great celebration, but Pam, I wish you and your whole team the very best of luck. And join me next time when I'm off to Devon to discover just what it takes to keep Britain's oldest coal-fired paddle steamer, the Kingswear Castle, in tip-top condition. Stormy Weather is a Bell Media production, supported by the Audio Content Fund.